Conversations from Capita. Hello and welcome to the next episode in our podcast series from Capita on the theme of the great opportunity. I'm Justine Green and we continue to look at the opportunities and choices organisations need to make to plan, rebuild and come back stronger during such unprecedented times. Our focus this time is on digital policing and we're joined by Phil Davis, Chief Superintendent, Director of Information, Greater Manchester Police. Hello, Phil. Hello, Justine. Really good to be here. Good to have you with us. And we're also joined by Matt Stagg, Digital Policing Lead, Capita Consulting. Hello, Matt. Hi, Justine. Now, Phil, a big question to start. What can digital policing do that will make for a better society for all of us? Wow, the the Monty Python question straight off the bat. Um, Well, for, for me, technology is all about enabling better policing. It's simple as that. We need to use all the tools in our toolbox to keep people safe, protect vulnerable people and lock the villains up. It's only through connectivity of the information around us that we can make the decisions that allow us to do the policing we need to do. And for me, one of the most important things around technology is is about improving our efficiency. So there'll, there'll always be more demand than there is supply. It's about freeing up our people so they can work with people. And Matt, how do you think digital policing will improve methods in terms of protecting people and their information? Up until you know, the last sort of 10 years, vulnerability has been very much in the art of the human, as in the police officer with a certain amount of experience can identify and understand uh, an individual or a location or a group of people's vulnerability based on drawing on their years of experience. What we've seen more recently is a recognition that if you can model that knowledge, that experience of of working within the the law enforcement space and map it against data, you can start pulling out some of the key indicators within data that translate directly to that operational experience. And as a result, what you can do is you can start to accelerate officers' decision-making and identification of vulnerability and ultimately protecting the public. Philip, Greater Manchester Police, when it comes to the information you hold on people, how are the ethical concerns being addressed? The key ethical dilemmas is, is you know, how, how we hold the data and what we do with the data. Um, we, we have very robust information security processes to ensure that all the data we do gather, and we do gather a huge amount from our interactions with the public, as you can imagine. We keep that secure and we only use it for the purpose that we recorded it for, and that's very much laid down in legislation as well. Um, and, and then when we don't need it anymore, we dispose of it according to legislation as well. So it's, it's those regulatory processes align to ethics. Um, and what we, we all also like to do, and I'm sure many other forces do this, is have a strong partnership with academia, because that really gives you an insight into the, the wider discipline and, and gives you a, a, a kind of a test, a balance in relation to the methods we're using. Now, there's more attention these days on how budgets are spent. How interested should members of the public be in the investment made in police technology, Matt? Because it's funded by the UK public, ultimately there is that desire to show the UK public what their money goes to and how their service is being improved, but also how UK law enforcement is able to adapt to this ever-evolving space of technically enabled criminality. The other arm to that is about being human-centred and When I say that, I don't just mean as in the technology has to work for the police officer that's using the technology so they can be more efficient in the way they work and and that actually they don't spend time working with technology that doesn't quite suit them. 
but it also has to be user-centered and human-centered for the members of the public that are being dealt with by that officer uh, or even are engaging the technology themselves you know, in, a, in, a, in a whole new world of online reporting and tracking their own crime and engaging with their own data, having that kind of user-centered approach and human-centered approach for the public as well. So ultimately, all of this is a, is a huge involvement in or evolution in the way policing and working with the public is coming together. Okay, well, next, let's look more at digital policing from the inside. Phil, give us an idea of the amount of technology a police officer interacts with each day. Are things already close to sensory overload? Policing is an ecosystem, and your frontline police officer will have, of course... Um, I can speak for my force. They will have access to a, you know, a, a top of the range smartphone. They'll have body worn video permanently attached to their uniform that's that's on. Um, and when they get back to the station, they'll have access to all of the systems they need via laptops and desktops. But uh, the frontline policing is just one part of it. And depending on on the function within policing, depends on what kind of technology they get. Um, I do think uh, we are in danger if we're not careful of sensory overload. So we record millions of pieces of data every day. Um, If we don't manage and cultivate it properly, we can drown in it. Uh, And I'm very much a believer in the strategy being focusing on insights, not the data. There's always a hunger for data. There's always it's always drilled into people to get as much information as they can to make some of the complex decisions they they have to in policing. But what we need is is insight. We don't need the data. We need the insight. And as long as you focus on that, you're you're much more likely to reduce the sensory overload for the officer, whatever their role is. And broadly speaking, how aligned are current police operations across the country? There's a lot of good work going on to align uh, policing. You know, from our national strategy coming out of the National Police Chiefs Council, supported by the Police ICT Company, and and that's in and around our digital strategy. I have to say we are somewhat bound by our 43 force police model, which we have in the UK, which is, is, is an accident of history. It's, it's, it's something that's been with us a while. So you get 43 ways of, of doing things. You get 43 levels of maturity for our core products, infrastructure. You've got a wide variety of user data literacy across the forces. And, and without being too blunt on it, there's, there's 43 procurement processes for our technology, which I really think it's time to start reviewing that as a model, because I think there's much better ways of doing it in our country. Matt, what do you think the key benefits of digital policing will be for police forces? The number of systems each police force has are, is, is, is a high number. And uh, individuals, uh, as in the members of the public, will have records across those systems as well as national systems and national databases and other uh, platforms that may even sit within partner environments like social care and health. And trying to get a a single view across all of that information, and as Phil also said, get insight from it rather than just get access to raw information that that officer's got to then make decisions about, is extremely difficult. But it's also where we have this huge opportunity for digital policing because every force is in a similar place. Uh, They all have multiple systems. They all have data that's hidden uh, within uh, either some legacy platforms or more modern platforms. They also have data hidden within partnership environments that could give them a richer picture or more 360 view of the situation they're dealing with. And being able to accelerate that information out 
and put it through some sort of modeling that allows people to get the relevant insight they need at the moment that they need it quicker to allow them to make faster decisions, in our view, is, is fundamental to the way in which policing has to evolve over the next few years. And Phil, any examples of where you've seen digital benefits? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, how long's the podcast? Uh, my, uh, uh, I, well, I'm passionate about mobile technology and mobile technology and policing, um, for me, gets police officers out of the police station and engaging with the community and that human time where you're actually engaging face to face rather than sat behind a desk at at a nick and you know doing the police work in people's living rooms and in the mcdonald's and in the local library without the need for a state so then you then have the conversation which is really exciting the minute about how many buildings do we need when we're we're policing in a different way and and, and we we have really pushed the envelope with with our mobile technology in the last few years and and, and it's it's getting this life of its own now in terms of the kind of apps that the frontline users are asking for that we can develop finally we're, we're doing some significant investments now in terms of digital evidence and that's probably worth a podcast on its own because the exponential growth in our ability to investigate criminals through the capturing of digital evidence is phenomenal it's really opening us up to better convictions for heftier sentences and, and, and that public protection that comes with it. So uh, you're hitting on something that I'm really passionate about here. Sounds good. Yeah, I think you're right. It needs a podcast in its own right. Uh, and a question for you both. What are the problems that need to be overcome for better adoption of new technology? Well, I've noticed since I then went into the startup world and we've continued that methodology through Capital Consulting, is taking a much more modular and agile sprinting approach. So the concept of co-collaborating, co-creating, building uh, your solution with the law enforcement users, the subject matter experts, not doing it over significant periods of time. So, you know, in some cases we do work where we actually sprint every day. So we, we stand up with our subject matter experts every morning and show them what we've done in the last 12 hours. In others, we do it every two weeks. And, and I suppose at the heart of it is a phrase that you've probably all heard, but maybe it hasn't made much sense, which is fast to fail. It's better to know within 12 hours or two weeks that you're off track than to find out six months later or even a year later when you've done thousands or millions of pounds worth of investment and you've got to backtrack on it and try and figure out how to fix it. I'm speaking from a force who, who made national headlines last year with, with our much needed, I may say, um, replacement of, of core operational software. But it came with an expectation from the highest levels both from regular, regulatory levels, um, government, national policing, from the highest levels, there's expectations right across the country that we have to improve our technology and that we sometimes lack adventure in using technology to improve the efficiency of policing. But then it's those same channels that then are disparaging of us when things go wrong. And it takes a very brave chief constable then to make a multi-million pound investment. But these things need to happen. Uh, And the other thing I just want to touch on, yes, leadership is starting to get it, but um, digital literacy is not a core skill for police leaders. It's not openly promoted as a core skill. It's seen as a specialism. It's not um, aligned uh, with any great deal of focus in any of the senior police training programs. So it's, it's pushed into a world of specialism where the techies are allowed to get on with it when senior police leaders should be leading it as the business user. I'd I'd go even further, let's stop calling it digital policing. 
Um, it makes it sound like a specialist requirement when it's a core requirement. When I started 23 years ago, we didn't call it paper policing. We just got on with it, you know. So um, digital is one tool in our arsenal. Policing is, is, is what it's all about. And it's about using that tool to police better. Well, clearly a lot of work still to do. All right. Well, in our final part next, the future of digital policing. organizations. Many organizations have been forced to adapt and try new things out over the last 12 months. Phil, what's the latest technology that Greater Manchester Police have been trialing recently? We're looking at um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to see that could help us. We've got um, a piece of work going on now about how we can create smart forms to to reduce the paperwork burden on frontline cops and and you know change as the data is entered based on all the information, all the big data we've got sat in our data warehouse about particularly about vulnerable people and perpetrators. Um, we're looking at robotics. That's a lot around um, how we can remove the administrative burden from what is an extremely administratively strong environment. And, and trying to find ways where we can automate that to free people up to do the more human side of policing. And something I'm particularly interested in is how we can look at um, agent-based simulation, for example, to help us with policy making. So that's using not only um, all the data we've got in our, you know, in, a, in our systems and our data warehouses to come up with good analytical products, but it's about creating what I would call synthetic intelligence, about creating how we think the organisation is going to behave in the future through simulation based on what we know about how people behave in the organisation now. Matt, what lessons have been learned recently from the private sector's implementation of technology that could be relevant to policing? Yeah, one of the beauties of our team is we actually work across both sectors. We're very, very strong in in policing, uh, but we we do data and AI deployments across uh, many other sectors in finance, critical infrastructure, etc. So we were able to see the, the strengths from both sides, if I'm honest. So, for example, we, we've taken the use of a national intelligence model within UK law enforcement and deployed that within the way in which we provide insights in, fi- in the financial sector. Um, so it's not all one way. We, there is this sort of flow from policing that's come into our methodologies. But what I would say the most overwhelming parts that we see coming from the private sector as being really successful is the speed uh, and agility to decide that they're going to invest in overhauling their data, exploring automation, exploring AI. Policing is phenomenal at responding in a crisis. Yeah, so if you look at the ability to make decisions, align budgets in COVID, policing has done a phenomenal job. Across all forces that we work with, we've seen a very, very rapid response. And in the case of a kidnap or a terror attack or, you know, a significant incident of crisis, policing is phenomenal. And it's about seeing if, if we can explore the mechanisms and methodologies and decision making and prioritization that policing applies in a crisis into everyday business decision making would be great because I think that would help UK law enforcement move forward effectively with its, its more business based decisions. Phil, what would you say is the immediate area of priority for the effective application of new technology? It sounds really obvious, but everyone gets attracted by the shiny stuff. Um, uh, But it's about being really clear on what your business requirements are, be it cybercrime, be it frontline policing, be it communications management, be it, you know, creating a, a robot to manage all your uniform stores, whatever. It's... It's about understanding what you've already got really, really clear, clearly and how the data sits behind it. Because if you don't 
do that, then you're going to make life really, really difficult for yourself to innovate. And and the other thing I would say is is um, the priority would be not to leave things too late. There should be a constant cycle of, of innovation on technology in police forces and things shouldn't be brushed under the carpet if there's a technology problem or potential solution out there that's going to make policing better. And finally, a quick one for you both. Are we about to see the RoboCop anytime soon? Oh, don't get me started on the uh, sci-fi references. We'll be here all day, Justine. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you how about this. Well, RoboCop was built um, to meet violence with violence, if I remember the movie, and I have seen it more than once. Um, I, I would prefer something, if it doesn't sound too sinister, along the lines of Minority Report, where we're getting to the bad guys before they create harm. Yeah, yeah. I think from my perspective, um, I, I agree with Phil. The kind of the connotation of RoboCop is quite a terrifying one uh, that I'd, I'd say we try to we try to avoid. But I do think that the, the concept of RoboCop being a technology augmented officer is actually, I think, is a good idea. I don't mean as in replacing arms, legs, eyes. I mean giving officers the right equipment that allows them to make decisions faster with the right information is a hundred percent. I think where we should be going. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed what's been a hugely interesting conversation. Phil, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Matt, thanks to you too. Thanks, Justine. Do join us again when we'll continue to explore the great opportunity with more experts from business, government and academia. Also, you can subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Justine Green, Phil and Matt, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.